want to thank everybody for coming, and especially I thank Dr. Lyman for being here. Um, as Dr. Lyman, some of you, many of you do know who he is, but some of you are different, coming from different parts of, of the YU system may not know. In addition to uh, teaching at uh, for our Rebel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, has a very illustrious has had so far and continues a very illustrious career, having received his doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania and Smicha from the Mir Yeshiva. Uh, he has lectured and had positions in the best of, of uh, both yeshivas and in the academic world, including Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, Hebrew University, and Oxford, among, among many others. Uh, he is the Professor Emeritus of Jewish History and Literature in the Department of Judaic Studies at Brooklyn College. Uh, as well as today serves as the Turo College Distinguished Professor of Jewish History and Literature, and of course is still, thankfully, a visiting professor of Jewish History and Literature at Bernard Rabel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, where he teaches Tanakh and Jewish History and has been a very uh, important part of that faculty for many, many years. Uh, in addition, he is the curator of the Lyman Library, which is a private collection of Judaica located in Kew Garden Hills, New York, consisting over of over 100,000 items, including about 30,000 books. Uh, and the purpose of that library is to make available to the public some of the treasures uh, of its collection. But in, in just in conclusion, I'll note uh, another introduc introduction I think was much more apt and by somebody with much more uh, knowledge than I, by Rabbi Dr. David Berger, who's today the, the dean of, of Bernard Revel uh, Graduate School of Jewish Studies, who said, just a few years ago, that Dr. Dr. Lyman has a level of expertise in the Jewish experience from the ancient nearest, near, near East until today that is, and I say this without a smidgen of hesitation or exaggeration, unparalleled by anyone else, and there isn't really anyone who comes close. Without further ado, we thank Dr. Lyman for being here for a special uh, pre-Pesach shir, and I ask you to please give him your undivided attention. Everybody have a handout. Thank you, uh, Reverend Yamin, for the kind and exaggerated words of introduction. You read them exactly as I wrote them.
I'm going to ask you to look at page one of the handout. And you'll forgive me if uh, each time we look at a passage, I'll mention the title of the passage because I see this is being recorded and uh, no one will know what I mean by passage one if I don't identify it. So uh, you have in front of you uh, a series of passages from basically from the Vilna Shas. We'll look at passage one first. This is Meseches Ksuvos, Kufbeis, Ahmed Beis. The Gemara is commenting on a discussion in the Mishnah, in the chapter 12 of Meseches Ksuvos, 12.1, where the Mishnah basically says that if a... Uh, the man is married to a woman who had a child from a previous husband, and he, he commits himself to being Zon, the uh, young child. Um, uh, he must bring that sustenance and food uh, to the house of the mother, and she has a right to say that uh, you will bring it to my house, and he cannot say that daughter of yours has to stay with me if she expects me to provide uh, Mizonos for her. So uh, that's the general context of the Mishnah. And uh, that husband cannot say to a second husband such and such and such and such, or he can't even say to uh, his wife. So Rav Chista says, from here we learn the halacha, that in all such cases, a daughter lives together with her mother. So the Gemara asks, uh, how do we know, you know what type of daughter we're, we're talking about here in the Mishnah? Is it referring to uh, a Gdola? Is it referring to a Ptano? A Ptano, we all understand, would presumably belong to the mother. If somebody dies and the wife is left with a child, the Yorshim of the father, the brothers of this child, say, uh, we want that young child to live together with us. Um, they probably won't care for that child very well because they're interested in not sharing the Yerusha with more brothers than necessary. So, and the mother says, no, I don't trust you. Uh, that child is going to live together with me. The halacha is that child is raised by the mother. And you don't let that child live together with brothers. And we actually have a case where this happened, where they allowed the child to stay with the, the brothers, as it were. The brothers slew this uh, brother of theirs, Ayin Reish Hay, that's what it says in the, in the Gemara. Ayin Reish Hay. Uh, there's a marginal note on the side of the uh, Gemara. Um, and this is in every edition of the Vilna Shas Arayom Hazer. Near Lomar, Erev Horishon. This is an abbreviation for Erev Horishon. Namely, they slew this baby the first night that the baby was with them. They didn't waste any time. They already harmed the baby, so... Uh, to be sure that the Yerusha would remain only with them. Then the marginal note continues, Vahamat Pisim Shelefanenu. Earlier publishers 
of Shas, presumably, Shogu, they erred. Bebiur HaRashi Tevos, they misunderstood what the Rashi Tevos Ayin Reish Hay spelled. Levaro Bedover Sheindlo Shaychus Klal Oinyon, and they gave it a rendering that has absolutely nothing to do with, with this Inyon. Uh, so it's clear from the marginal note that the marginal note is aware that they're correcting an earlier text of, uh, of the Gemara. What it is is unclear, and why Ayin Reish Hay is Erev Harishon is even less clear. Passage 2, just to show you that the riff in the Rambam, the riff in, uh, in the Vilna Shas, so if you open up to the equivalent of this page, uh, in the riff, and the riff brings this halacha lamasa, and he brings this Gemara. Masa hoyu, I just, the, the line that interests us is that one line, Masa hoyu, Masa hoyu, and again, Ayin Reishay. There's an asterisk next to the Ayin Reshe, and the same marginal comment that you see in passage one, which is in the Gemara, Kuf Beis Amad Beis, is printed next to the riff. In the same Vilna Shas, if you look in Tosefta on Ksuvas, Tosefta has a passage. The wording is a little different, but still very interesting. It's more or less the same passage. Ma'asa hoya be'echad. This is the Tosefta. So it once happened that the child was given over to the brothers, Vishokatuhu, they slew him, Bez Ayin Reshe. And once again, asterisk, and the asterisk, they print again the marginal comment that we have in everywhere else with regard to, uh, to this passage. Very, very strange passage. We need to understand what this Gemara is all about. Now I want to talk a little bit about Tisa Eslar. Tisa is spelled T-I-S-Z-A hyphen E-S-Z-L-A-R. Tisa Eslar was a small 19th century village on the left bank of the Tisa River in northeastern Hungary. This is a backwater community, um, some 50 kilometers east of Mishkolz and some 50 kilometers north of Debrecen. And if you're going to eat Kerestir matzis for Pesach, Kerestir is near Tisa Eslar. <coughs> Tisa Eslar had a population of about 2,700 people mostly Catholics and Calvinists. There were two churches and one public school. The Jewish community consisted of some 25 families. They were mostly merchants, leaseholders, and poor peddlers. Uh, they could not afford a rabbi, and this is typical, by the way, for Stetlach throughout Central and Eastern Europe in the medieval and early modern period. They couldn't afford a rabbi, but they had a, of course, they had a base Knesset, they had a synagogue, and, and a mikveh. What was absolutely essential for any one of these communities was a shochet. You couldn't eat kosher food unless you had a shochet. So you needed a shochet, and a shochet indeed was essential. And so they appointed one person who served as shochet, and automatically this shochet, almost by definition, was the most learned member of the community. Uh, so he served as chazan. He served as Talmud Torah teacher and part-time rabbi. 
The position paid very little, but it carried a rent-free house, a small parcel of land, and the possibility of uh, additional income from bar mitzvahs, weddings, and funerals. In 1882, the incumbent sheikhet left the community for a better position elsewhere. And the vacancy had to be filled. And uh, three finalists uh, among the various applicants agreed to come to Tisa Esler on, on Prabha. The issue was not their ability to serve as a sheikhet. That was obvious. Uh, the community simply assumed that anybody who had Kabbalah to be a sheikhet was a sheikhet. Um, the community, however, was not about to appoint a new chazan without hearing him first. And the sheikhet was going to be the chazan also. So he had to come on Prova. The three finalists, for whatever reason, none of them knew each other or had ever met each other, but the three finalists, uh, the one free Shabbos they had was Shabbos HaGadol. So on April 1, 1882, it was Shabbos HaGadol. Um, all three finalists came on Prova, and one with Davin Shachris, and one Davin Musaf, and one did Kabbalah Shabbos, and so on and so forth. That same Saturday, a 14-year-old Christian girl, a maidservant, her name was Esther Salamosi, disappeared. She was sent on an errand by a family that she was working for to buy paint in, in a general store. She had to walk a mile to get from that house to the general store, and she passed the Jewish street as she went to the uh, general store. Um, she left at 10 a.m. in the morning on Saturday. She reached the store about 11 a.m. Um, Jews testified that they actually saw her walking to the, uh, in that direction. She bought the paint. The owner of the hardware store testified that she did that. And she was never seen again. The girl's distraught mother notified the authorities. Search was made with no success. Since she had to pass the synagogue on the way back, not just on the way going, to the general store, <clears throat> rumors began to spread that she was kidnapped by the Jews and she was ritually murdered so that her blood could be used for baking the matzah and for preparing the wine for Pesach. As these rumors spread throughout northeastern Hungary, it was no longer a simple Tisa-Eslar affair. Detectives were brought in from nearby larger cities in Hungary, and the search was intensified. And indeed, a chief investigator was brought in from one of the larger cities. He was assigned to the task of uh, solving the problem. He was a notorious anti-Semite, had a track record before he ever came of being an anti-Semite, and he was determined to lay blame on the Jews. He had the synagogue searched. He had the floor of the synagogue removed to see whether a body was buried under the floor. He had all the Jewish graves dug up in the Jewish section of the cemetery to search for the remains of uh, Esther Solimosi. He found nothing. The chief investigator then kidnapped a 13-year-old Jewish boy 
the son of the Shamus of the synagogue. The boy initially testified that he saw nothing and knew nothing about the case. But ultimately, he was beaten, he was tortured, and then programmed with what to say in order to save his life. He testified that Esther was kidnapped by the Jews, he, she was brought to the synagogue, where she was slaughtered, ritually slaughtered, and her blood was collected in a vessel. The three main culprits were the three candidates for Shechet. Two held her down, while the third slashed her throat. And many other Jews in the community were accused of being accomplices in the crime by this young man. The 13-year-old listed their names. This testimony was recorded on May 21, 1882. And rumor had become reality. And virtually the entire male population of Tisa Esla was arrested. And this new case of ritual murder was reported throughout Hungary and indeed throughout Europe. Anti-Semitic sentiment reached a height it had never reached before. Only one thing was missing, the corpse of Esther Solomosi. That would turn up in June of 1882. A body of a young woman was discovered on the shore of the Tisa River. The body was dressed in the very clothes worn by Esther Solomosi, and the body was identified by the mother of Esther as being her daughter. But there were no marks on her throat or anywhere else on her body. She wasn't harmed. She was not slaughtered. She had drowned. And almost certainly it was a suicide. There were no signs of a struggle. But the chief investigator refused to accept this solution, which in effect absolved the Jews of guilt. He had the body undressed, and he brought in new witnesses who testified that the body was not that of Esther Solomosi. And the chief investigator then concluded that this was another murder committed by the Jews in Tisa Eslar in order to cover up the first crime, since they couldn't find the body anywhere. Um, so they, uh, and know they were now accused of ritual slaughter, so they murdered yet another girl, but drowned her so there would be no signs of uh, a murder taking place. The investigations were completed and it was time for the trials to begin. It took over a year for the trial to begin in 1883 and it took place in a large city near Edhause, the nearest large city to uh, Tisa Eslar where there were real judges, real courts, real lawyers and so on and it followed official protocol. Some 300 witnesses were called to testify in the case. And after all was said and done, after all the witnesses were heard, the judges weren't satisfied with the evidence that they heard. They couldn't really reach a decision. And they decided that they wanted to visit the site of the crime. And they wanted to do this together with that 13-year-old boy who testified the son of the Shamus. He was the only person to testify that he actually witnessed the ritual murder taking place. 
So in July of 1883, the judges came to Tisa Eslar. They entered the synagogue, and the judges had three goals in this part of the investigation. One, they wanted the son of the shamus to retell every detail of what he witnessed and to point out exactly where everyone stood when this took place. Two, they wanted to know exactly where the son of the shamus stood as he witnessed the events that occurred in the synagogue. And three, the judges themselves wanted to investigate the synagogue for evidence of bloodstains or of an attempt to remove them or any kind of evidence of virtual murder that could still be found in the synagogue. They found no new physical evidence of significance. But they learned from having the boy repeat his testimony and pointing out where everybody allegedly stood when it happened, um, they learned that it was physically impossible for the son of the shamus to have witnessed the acts he claimed to have witnessed from the place where they took place and from where he stood. And the boy himself realized his mistake. He was a false witness. And with that, the case against the accused collapsed, and all were acquitted. This was August 3, 1883. Now, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Go home and read your histories of what happened in Tisar Eslar. A book was written not long ago that investigated the popular mind in Hungary today to see uh, uh, whether anybody remembered even Tisar Eslar or the affair, and many didn't. But they found that there are still those to this very day who remember in great detail the Tisa Esler case. They remembered the name Esther Solomosi. And she was the young woman who was murdered in the synagogue by Jews who needed Christian blood for the making of matzah and the drinking of wine. Moreover, they covered up their crime by dressing yet another corpse in Esther's clothes. This was witness testimony taken in recent years in Hungary. I ask you to turn to page two. Some of you did it already. So again, for the page two is simply a, uh, a photograph of the cover of a booklet in Yiddish all about the Schrecklicher Blut Bilbul von Tisa Esler, the Tisa Esler, the terrible uh, blood libel that took place in, uh, in Tisa Esler with a drawing of Esther Solomosi on the page. Mitrai original builder. This booklet had three original pictures. And um, also on the title page, it gives another name for this affair Dinaya Nagila Esther, the new scroll of Esther. A story of how Jews were persecuted and how they, how they managed to survive. Those of us who have nothing to do with our time also collect what's called ephemera. So uh, I'm holding in my hand uh, the Illustrierte Zeitung. This is like, any of you heard of Life magazine or you know, Time? Uh, this is what was published in Leipzig, 1883. This is July 14, 1883. Uh, wonderful edition of the newspaper with a full write-up on the 
Esler affair and what's going on, the trial. It was in process when this was going on. With drawings of all those arrested and accused, the son of the Shamas, who's over here, the 13-year-old who testified, and about the candidates for Shaykhit who were accused of engaging in this activity. Beautiful picture of the shul and uh, shul pointing at it with my finger here, and right next to Shul is the Shamus house, lid next to the Shul. So this is, we actually have this incredible evidence of what took place uh, or didn't take place, as the case may be, in Tisa Esler at the time. Let's go to page three of the handout. And I'm simply identifying the passage. This is a passage that was published by a notorious anti-Semite. His name was August Rowling. Rowling was a professor, believe it or not, of theology at the Charles University in Prague. Uh, very articulate and a terrible anti-Semite who published pamphlet after pamphlet and book after book of anti-Semitic literature. And this is a uh, passage that he published. He, he, he sent testimony to the Tisa Eslar case to the court about how Jews regularly commit ritual murder. Here's a passage from Rowling, and I can't find this so far earlier than 1892, but it's close enough. So this is a passage from Neue Deutsche Zeitung. The original is in German. Here it is in translation. It appeared in March 16, 1892, in one of the many, many uh, anti-Semitic uh, works by Rowling. In this case, Eine Talmudstelle von Rituales Schechten, a, uh, a Talmudic passage about ritual slaughter. And I'm going to read it exactly as it translates from the, from the German. It might be interesting to know that the Talmud itself, although the fact long remained unnoticed, testifies to the Jews' blood ritual. The Talmudic passage occurs in Tractate Ktuvot 102b. It is there announced that even a Jew boy, a minor, was killed on the evening before the Easter festival. Easter festival here means Pesach. By his brothers, or was going to be killed. The Talmud states that people on the part of the Jewish authorities did not desire this slaughter and therefore let the minor grow up with his mother and not with his brothers, who were avaricious and wanted at the same time to inherit the boy's property. It was not allowed because the dead father had bequeathed the boy to the mother and so they wanted in this case to show respect for his last will. In this affair, logic forces on everyone the conviction that one, even a Jew boy whom his father's last will did not protect can be slaughtered as an Easter lamb. Two, if Jews sought for Easter lambs, even among the minors of their own people, how much more will they ritually slaughter the non-Jews esteemed low as beasts? The memorable passage runs according to the Amsterdam edition of the Talmud Babli as follows, and it quotes our Gemara, but of course the ending is not quite the same as in the Vilna Shas. Ma sehoya 
Vishokhatu Erev HaPesach. So Ayin Reish Hey is Erev HaPesach. And so it is in every printed edition of Shas, before the Vilna Shas. That means, claimed Rowling, if a person dies and leaves behind a son, not yet of years, for his mother and the father's heirs, the brothers say, let him become big, grow up with us. But the mother says, let my son become big with me. He is left with his mother, and he is not left with those entitled to his inheritance. The case comes to pass that they would slaughter him on the evening before the Esther, the Easter festival. 14 Nistam, Erev HaPesach. On the 15th is the actual Easter festival. An absolutely incredible passage. It's hard to believe that anybody could have read the Gemara this way. He has the text right, but look what he read into this text. And there are at least four, at least four, there are many more, but at least four egregious errors that we'll mention right away. The Gemara indeed says, In many places in Tanakh and many places in Chazal, doesn't is not ritual slaughter. Of course, Shechita is ritual slaughter, but the Ruchachat often means to slay, to kill. Um, In Parshas Shlach, Sefer Bamidbar, Vomru Agoyim Ashashamu Eshimachalay Mar, Mibilti Yacholas Hashem Lahovi Esamaze Eloretz Hashanishvalahem, Vayish Chotem Bamidbar. Vayish Chotem doesn't mean ritual slaughter. So the Goyim are going to say, if Moshe Rabbeinu says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, fine, you'll become the progenitor of B'nai Yisrael. I've had enough with B'nai Yisrael. And Moshe says, and what are the Goyim going to say? Goyim, listen to what the Goyim are going to say. God wasn't able to bring his people into the land of Israel. What did he do? He slew them. No, he didn't ritually slaughter them. That's what the root shachat means. Many places in Tanakh, that's how Targum Unkelus rendered it on that Pesach, and that's how it appears in many places in Shas. In fact, in many places in Shas, where we have the same passage in a medrash, for example, in one place it'll use the word shachat, and the other will say harak. Harak. This is not ritual slaughter. Two, there is not a word here about blood for Passover, and there's not a word here about a korban pesach. So all it is saying, this is a passage that says it happens to be that they slaughtered that child, they killed that child. It was Erev Pesach. Erev Pesach probably is totally irrelevant for our story. It happened on Erev Pesach, so it's nothing to do with the Korban Pesach. No Jew ever bought another Jew as a Korban Pesach. Uh, unbelievable that anyone could even make this claim. And by the way, it's interesting. Yaakov uh, Emden, Nagos Yavitz, take a look in Mesechus Ksuvis on, on this passage. 102b, and it bothered Rabbi Akamemnon. Why, why does it say Erev Pesach here? What, what does Erev Pesach have to do with this story? So take a look. It's also a mistake in the Vilna Shas. The Vilna printers everywhere pulled out this Nusuch of the Gemara 
and they removed the words of uh, any slaughter taking a place taking place by Jews on Pesach um, or Arab Pesach. The uh, but they left it in. They didn't realize that in the small print in the Agos Sashas, the Rebbe Yaakov always gives you the incipit. You get the first words of whatever he's commenting on, and the first words are Erev HaPesach. <laughs> so even in the Vilna Shas, the original Nusuch of Shas is preserved in Rebbe Yaakov not by accident. Anyway, but Rabbi Yaakov goes on to explain, just so you should know, it's interesting, it bothered him why it says Erev Pesach, and Rabbi Yaakov says because because uh, this was a case that took place when they were still bringing uh, a carbon Pesach and they immediately slaughtered or they immediately killed this baby they slew this baby even though they now became Tomei and they wouldn't be able to bring the carbon themselves so Rabbi Yaakov but the emphasis, the Pash shot, the simple shot is very clear is it happened, it happened to happen and notice the Nusach in the uh, in the Tosefta. It once happened. It happened to be, it happened on an era of Pesach. Third, this murder that took place was a one-time event and it's condemned. The Gemara is saying is this shouldn't have happened. We don't know. This couldn't have happened. This child should never have been in the hands of its brothers. So it's nothing here that's praised. And finally, fourth, there isn't a word here about killing a Christian for his blood, which is what's necessary in order to make wine or to bake matzah. It's just absolutely incredible, but you can see what an anti-Semite can do. And here's what we see was put in print for everybody to see at least as early as 1892. I am quite confident it already appeared in 1883. And I, I'm still looking for it, for the passage. I haven't found it yet. Um, Rowling published many essays in the year 1883. They're very hard to gain access to. So when I gain access to all of them, I'm afraid I'm going to find this passage. Turn to passage four. Uh, page page four of the handout. Page four of the handout. So I'm just simply showing you the evidence. Um, there are three passages on the page. These parallel the three earlier passages that I cited from the Vilna Shas, namely the Gemara Exubus, the Gemara as it appears in the Rif, and the Gemara as it appears in the Tosefta. Here are three pre-1883 versions, so you can see for yourself. So the first passage is the Venice 1521 edition, the Bamberg edition of the Vilna, of the of Shas, uh, printed in Italy. Um, 1521, Mesechus Ksuvos, the line is underlined, There is no abbreviation, Ayin Reishe, anywhere in Shas. It doesn't exist. It's Ayin Reishe, it was Erev HaPesach. Yeah, regarding the riff, I underlined it. This is a Pressburg 1836 edition, beautiful edition that I happen to own in my house, so it was easy for me to copy. And then Tosef Tuxuvos Tsukamandel's edition was published in 1880, so it's pre-1883. Nobody ever had a problem with this passage in Shas. It was Masahoyo Be'echod Vishachatu Be'erev Pesach.
1883, because of the T. Esler blood libel and a massive literature that appeared throughout Europe listing proofs that Jews ritually murder Christians, listing passages from the Talmud and rabbinic literature that Jews engage in ritual murder, all of them imaginary. When that happened, the Vilna Shas was published. When was the Vilna Shas published? The Vilna Shas, the Shas that we all know as the final canonical edition of Shas. Every printed edition of Shas, more or less, Arayom Mazeh, is a copy of the Vilna Shas. That was printed between 1880 and 1886. Take a look at the next time you have access to, to that. That's the last Vilna Shas. They printed many other copies of the Vilna Shas down right through. The Ram Publishing Company existed until, until uh, the Holocaust. But they used the same plates from the 1880 to the 1886 Shas. And if you look up the historical record is a wonderful, wonderful sefer by the author of Diktuke Sofrim. It's included in Diktuke Sofrim. It's published separately. Mamar al Talmud. It lists all the details about all editions, the printed editions of Talmud. You will open up to the Vilna Shas, 1880 and 1886. That's when the whole Shas was published. And you'll see that uh, Meseches Ksuvos was published in 1884. In 1884. And when they set the type for that Gemara in Meseches Ksuvos, they said, this can't stay here. We've got to get rid of this Erev Pesach. And it became Ayin Reshe. And I want to give credit, Kol HaKavod, and all this is, is, you know, is what's called research. <laughs> uh, but I then looked, I wanted to see if, who noticed this? Who, who, who really knew this? After all, we have new Shasin today. So I give credit to two special editions. One is Oza Hadar. They didn't get it quite right, but they, they came close. So in the new Oza Hadar Shas, you'll take a look at the beautiful Shas, one of the most beautiful Shas ever printed. And they reset the type, but it's the Vilna Shas. And when they come to Ksuvis Kufes on the bays, so uh, in the Oza Hadar Shas, at least in the edition that I looked at, there are several editions. I didn't check all the editions. But the edition that I looked at, the uh, Shalayim 2015, it, read, it says, a marginal comment. It prints, Ayin Reish Hay. But the marginal comment says, fusim Erev HaPesach. All printed editions of Shas read here, Erev HaPesach. Vayin Yavitz. Take a look at Rabbi Yaakov Ubitfus Vilna Shinu. Terrific. So yeah, so far he has everything right. So it was the Vilna Shas that change the Nusuch of Shas here, and you see why. So it's a you know, defensive, if you like, response to uh, what, what the Goyim are claiming. But then it says, they, they, they changed the text because they were afraid that the censor would anyway change the text. So they, they didn't know what the censor would do, so they changed it because it, it, Vilna was part of uh, Russia at, in, in, at that, in this period. And uh, uh, they came under the censorship of the, uh, the Tsarist censorship, so they were worried about what the Tsar, what, at that time, what the, what the censors would do. So just to be on the safe side, they put in Ayn Reshe instead. They weren't worried about the censors. They knew exactly what the anti-Semitic literature of the time was saying about this passage. But the person who got it right in Kolak Hovod is Reb David Cohn, wonderful Talmud Chacham in Brooklyn, author of many many Svarim. 
You were a safer a long time ago, called Ha'okov Lemishor. Toyos Hatfus Bishas Vilna. He noticed a long time ago that there are lots of mistakes and changes in the Vilna Shasta. The best Shasta we have, the canonized Shasta, Vilna Shasta, is not without mistakes. Sure, the whole Sefer, we corrected all the errors based on manuscripts, based on earlier print editions of Shasta and so on. So it's called the Akov Lamisha, it goes by Mesechta, and if you open up uh, Mesechus Ksuvis, page 106 in Akov Lamisha, he writes, this was censored. Terrific. This was self-censored. This was censored by us. Because claims were made that we need blood on Erev Pesach. And so they read it into this passage. Terrific. But then he added, Oh, Mipnei Sheyeshu Hanotri Neragos. Until then, he got everything right. <laughs> that was perfect. Anyway, Kolakov. Okay. So here's a sample of how the impact of blood libel on a text of Shas. We now turn to the impact of blood libel on the Shulchan so I'm going to ask you to turn to the page five of the handout. And here we have to begin with a little background. In 1759, in Lvov, also called Lemberg, today it's Lviv in Ukraine. In 1759 in Lvov, a radical group of believers in Shapsai Tzvi, the Frankists, forced Orthodox Jewry to engage in a public debate with them, with the Frankists, under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church would appoint judges from the Roman Catholic Church who would decide who was right in this debate, the Frankists or Orthodox Jewry, and once they made that decision, if the Orthodox Jews won, the Frankists would have to convert to Christianity. If, uh, if the Frankists won, the Orthodox Jews either would have to convert to Frankism or to Christianity. It was a terrible, terrible moment in Jewish history. And, of course, the Jews called on Gedolei Hador at the time to represent them, and one of the key representatives was Rechaim Akon Rappaport, author of Charles Shulis, Rechaim Akon Rappaport and many others for And it was a terrible situation where they could ask any question they wanted. You had to answer on the spot. You didn't, couldn't always give the right answer. You always had to remember what, the, what effect your answer might have on the judges or on the audience and so on. Um, none of us should ever be put to the test. And Rebchaim Akoyen Rappaport did very well for himself. The Frankists, who are a Jewish sectarian group, proclaim that the Talmud teaches that Jews require Christian blood for ritual purposes, and that whoever believes in the Talmud must consume Christian blood on Passover. That the Frankists were currying favor with the Roman Catholic authorities 
and engaging in a satanic act of collusion in order to save their own skin does not for one moment mitigate the scandal of Jew accusing fellow Jew of blood libel. At a time when some church officials relished the blood libel and were leading innocent Jews to their deaths. To prove their point, the Frankists cited from the Shulchan Aruch, the passage you have in front of you in page 5, passage 8. Or Echayim, Simon Tafayim Beis, Sif Yudalif. Where it reads, Mitzvah Lachzor, Achar Yayin Odom. It's clear as daylight. Jew has to use red wine. That's how they cited it. And then they said, take a look at the Taz. And the Taz is printed on the page. Take a look at it. The Taz writes, why do you have to use red wine on, uh, on Pesach? And Shabbos, we don't use red wine. There's no chiv to use red wine on Shabbos. Achar yayin odom, v'chsiv al-teire yayin kiyis adom. It's a posuk in Mishlei, talking about a drunkard. Don't oogle red wine. And the posuk goes on to say, as it lends its color to the cup, as it flows so smoothly, in the end it bites like a snake and it stings like an adder. So stay away from wine. So the Taz says, we learn from this Pasuk that red is something that makes wine attractive. So what red is a mila in wine. And the Taz is asking why, why here in Hilchus Pesach is it to say you have to use red wine for the Arba Kosos? And in Hilchus Kiddush and Shabbos, it doesn't say that you have to use red wine. The Hikbid Hatur Khan Bedalat Kosos Bezev, the Lobi Kiddush, Besiman Reshayim Bez, the Yesh Od Remez Lo Adom. The word for red wine has another remez as well. Zecher Ladam. Red wine reminds us of blood. Shoya Paro Shochet Bene Yisrael. Paro used to slaughter B'nai Yisrael. And then the Taz goes on, what's absolutely important for our purposes, I'm talking about the impact of blood libel on, on, on halacha, he goes on to say that despite what it says in the Shulchan Aruch, the Idna, the Taz lived in the 17th century, now in the 17th century, Nimnu milikach yayin odom, we don't take red wine anymore. Because of blood libel. So you see a simon in the Shulchan Aruch uh, that's affected by blood libel. If you take a look at the Mishnaburah, you'll see the Mishnaburah rewords this and says, where we still have to worry about blood libel, we don't use red wine. But uh, in the 17th century, the Taz could say, we no longer use red wine. So the Frankists, this is what they cited. Now you have one minute to answer. <laughs> You have to defend the Jews. You're defending the Jewish people against this accusation. And what the Frankists added, by the way, to get you even more nervous, they cited the passage, and then they say, these passages prove that Jews must drink Christian blood on Passover, and you'll ask, how so? Where do you see this in the, in the Shulchan Aruch? 
So the Frankists explained that nowhere in Tanakh is there mention of Jewish blood shed by Pharaoh. What did the Tanakh say? Zechel Adam, Paro, Yisrael. Where does it say that Paro was shed blood of Bnei Yisrael? So the Frankists said, all these citations are really a secret code, whose true meaning is Jews are required to drink Christian blood on Passover. Or Hakoin Rappaport stands up. And he, and we'll soon see that another person who was involved in a different way in this controversy, Rabionis and Ivishitz, both of them were, knew each other well and lived at the same time and lived through this tragic affair. Both of them, in their responses to the Frankists and to the Roman Catholic judges, were quick to note that the first quotation of the Frankists is taken out of context. Take a look at the Shulchan Aruch. Mitzvah, Lachzor, Achar, Yayin, Odom. And what is, what's added by the Ramah? Im ein halovan meshubach bimenu. It's a mitzvah to use red wine if white wine isn't better. But if white wine is better than red wine, the halach is you have to use white wine. That's the semen in the Shulchan Aruch, as it was written in the 16th century. So very cleverly, Yerchaim Akoin Rappaport, and both Rav Yonason and his response, he, he, wrote, he sent a written response. He had more time to, to think about it. But they both wrote immediately the same thing. That if, so it's very clear if you look at the full passage in this semen in the Shulchan Aruch, it says that red wine is preferable when it is a better wine. In locations where white wines tend to be better than red wines, white wine is preferable. Thus, it is not the color of the wine, but the quality of the wine that is decisive. What does this have to do with blood? Nothing here about blood. Regarding the second part that the Taz raised, that the Frankists raised in light of the Taz, that the, uh, that the Taz mentions that Pharaoh slaughtered uh, Jews, and therefore there was blood, and therefore another reason for drinking red wine and there's no such passage anywhere in Tanakh you're not going to find it anywhere in Yitzhiya Smitzrayim so Rav Chaim Rapon Rappaport answered remember he had one minute to answer so he gave the following answer he said if you look at the beginning of Sefer Shmos Perik Aleph Pasuk Chavbez this is what his answer was it says Vayitzav paro l'chol ha-mole mor kol ha-ben ha-yilod ha-ya-oro tashlichu kol ha-bas so paro issued an order that all Israelite males that are born have to be cast into the uh, into the Nile so paro he said paro did slay Jews. Here it is. Okay, it, it, uh, at the time it worked, believe it or not, at the debate, the, the Frankists had no answer. They had nothing to say about this particular response of, uh, 
of Reb Chaim Akoin Rappaport. It was a clever answer. It appointed to a verse in scripture where Pharaoh issued an order for the uh, murder of Jewish children. It's true. Can't be denied. So the Christians listening couldn't deny the verse. They, they, knew, they knew scripture. But it was a contrived answer. For well, this is surely not what the Taz is saying. And drowning victims in water is not quite the same as shedding blood. And moreover, the imagery is wrong. If you drown children in water, I'm not going to remember them by, by looking at red wine. There was no bloodshed. And here, Rebionis and Ivishitz wrote as follows. But he had the advantage of writing from his house. <laughs> not in the line of fire, but he had a little more time, not much more. So he explained that Rev. David ben Shmuel Alevi, the Taz, was alluding to famous Midrashim. And these Midrashim are cited by Rashi on Chumash. So anybody who learns Chumash in Sefer Shmuel, you should know these Midrashim by heart. Describing Pharaoh's need to bathe in the blood of Jewish firstborn children. What this Midrash is really explaining is everybody asks, how come in the Makos Bechoros, what, why, did they, why were they punished? All of Egypt should have been punished. Why Makos Bechoros? So there was Mido connected Mido. Pharaoh had to, for whatever disease he was suffering from, so he had to slaughter Jewish children and he needed their blood, and he had to bathe in their blood, and it had to be blood of firstborn children of the Kharos. So this is what the Medrash said took place. It was measure for measure what Pharaoh did to the Israelite firstborn was done to the Egyptian firstborn. Rebionison cites the Medrash. He also cites Targum on Sefer Shmos, Perak Beis, Posukhav Gimel, brings the same Medrash. So he brings Targum on Sefer Shmos, and then he added in a rhetorical flourish in his letter to the authorities read the register of permitted books as established by the Council of Trent. This is a letter to the, those Roman judges, Roman Catholic judges. You will find Targum listed on the letter T. Thus, the church recognizes this book as trustworthy. So they can't deny what Rashi brings and what the Medrash brings, because it's also happened to be in Targum. So, no problem. Okay. But they didn't stop here at the Frankists. And the Frankists, they cited the Passover Haggadah. Take a look at passage 9, and passage 9 is just the famous passage in Haggadah where the list of the Eser Makos, Dom Tzvadeh, Akinim, Orov, etc. And Rabbi Yehuda HaYenosin Bahen Simonim, the Tzach Adash Ba'achav. The Frankists noted that the rabbis explained the abbreviations as an acrostic formed from the first letters of each of the ten plagues, the Tzach Adash Ba'achav. But claimed the Frankists. The acrostic actually consists of the first letters of a coded message. And passage 10 is the coded message, which the Frankists read out aloud and presented to the Roman Catholic judges at the debate in 1759. <laughs> Dam 
We all need blood. Just as was done to Jesus in Jerusalem. by the sages in Jerusalem. The code was written in three words. The Tzach Hadash claimed the Frankists to allude to the Holy Trinity. And the message really means that Jews must consume Christian blood. So again, Reb Chaim HaKon Rappaport, he had to answer on, on the Zat, and he had a brilliant answer. His answer was, if you really want to know why it says the Tzach Hadash Ba'achav, real reason is because in Tehillim 78, okay, Ches, verses 44 to 51, we have all the ten plagues are mentioned, and they're mentioned in a different order than the, than the order of the Torah. In the Torah, it's Dom Tzardeya Kinemarov, exactly in the order that we have it. And in Tehillim, Perak 78, is a different order of the ten plagues. You might think that the order in Tehillim is correct and the order in the Torah is not. So Rabbi Yehuda went out of his way to make these abbreviations, the Tzach Ba'achav, to signal that this is the correct historical order of the plagues. In Tehillim, it's a song, it's a poem. For certain meter purposes, they had to rearrange the order of the plagues. Very clever answer, terrific answer, yes? The proceeding were in German or Latin, what was it? Proceedings, uh, good question. Um, the records are all in Latin. All the records that we have, the records of the proceedings are all in Latin. Yes, and the Jews had translators who translated for them. All the records of the proceedings that we have, we have actually the records of the proceedings that took back, there were two debates, one was in Lvov, and the one in 1759 in Lvov, the records are in Latin, they're available in Hebrew translation, but they're in Latin. So they didn't do Latin? The Jews use translators. Okay. Yes. And indeed, they, they made it a point when they appointed the committees who would be there together with the Rabbanim. The Rabbanim didn't know Latin. They had translators who translated for them. So uh, Chaim HaKoyim Rappaport gave this answer. This answer you'll find in, in the Rishonim, uh, in the Perish Miyuchas Tarashi on the Godesh of Pesach. You'll find that it goes way back in time. I'm not sure it's, it's the correct answer, but it's, it's one answer. Rabbi Anderson Ivish, again, who had more time to write and think about it, was uh, perhaps more thorough in demolishing this claim of the, of the Frankists. So first he said, you can take the initial letters of any sentence in any safer, in any book, in any newspaper, and create any message you want. Just take the first letters and you invent a, a message. Why should anyone believe the Frankists that they have read the proper meaning of this code? I can give you 10 other codes that'll work. Why should I believe the Frankists for one moment? That's one. So methodologically, you can't play this game of this is a secret code for the following. Um, secondly, even if you accept the reading of the Frankists, this reading is a non sequitur. Read it carefully. It says, Dam Tzrichim Kulona, we all need blood, just as Sheosubo Soish, just as was done to the founder of Christianity. What was done to the founder of Christianity? He was crucified. No one gathered his blood. No Jew drank his blood. 
There's no such tradition anywhere, either in Christianity or in Judaism. So what do you mean, she was crucified? What has this to do with the drinking of blood or the necessity to gather blood together for drinking purposes? Thirdly, said Rabbi Yonason, it's very easy to explain what Rabbi Yehuda was doing here with the abbreviation of the Sachadash Bachav because Rabbi Yehuda did this regularly. Rabbi Yehuda, Torah was Torah Sheval Peh. We had no written texts. Anytime we had lists that had to be memorized, so they used mnemonic devices. You took the first letter of the first words, and we have this all over shots. We have Simon, which we all skip. <laughs> that Simon, which gives the lists of all the different parts of uh, the, the prices that will follow, and so on, the discussions in the Gemara. They needed that because there was no way of memorizing this otherwise. And then Rabbionison said, Look elsewhere in Shas. See what Rabbi Yehuda says. And he cited a passage in Mesechus Menachos where Rabbi Yehuda gives a mnemonic device, an abbreviation, so that we could remember a list of items and we'll know exactly what the, what the, uh, the list of items is. Menachos 96a. Look it up. There you have Rabbi Yehuda again. So that's terrific. That makes it clear. We see a pattern and how Rabbi Yehuda studied passages of Chazal. You have time for one more sample? I'll give you one more sample. I don't know. I, I, no one told me what the time limit is. Are we done? One more? So these are all samples of the impact of blood libel on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. Yes. Right. And he felt compelled to explain it. Do you think that he was maybe in part motivated by the Frankist affair? I guess that would depend upon when he wrote the Hagar. <laughs> uh, I don't think he, I doubt it. I, I really think, because he's giving a very rational answer. He's not, uh, you know, he has the text, he's not questioning the text. He just wants to know why, what do we need to know? What, was, what day this took place? And he comes up with a, a reasonable answer why the day is there. Uh, if he had any, if there was any threat in his day, there was blood libel existed, but nobody ever cited the passage in Mesechus Kesubis as being relevant. If he thought it was relevant, he would have gotten rid of the, he would have corrected the passage. No one ever corrected the passage before the Bill of Shas. Okay. One more passage, just to bring it to your attention on your own. You could, yes, sorry. Do you have documentation? What was the reaction, the reaction of the Jewish community? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a rich literature all over Europe. Jews and Goyim were all engaged and watching very carefully the the trial at Tisa Esla. Everybody knew that 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 trial would be a model for the future. And what was at stake really was democracy and law and whether the justice would prevail. This was written up everywhere in every country. There were those who there were Jews, of course, who supported the Jews, and there were Goyim who supported the Jews. All right, H.L. Strack, a very famous Bible scholar, uh, wrote a whole book defending the Jews. 
as, as did various, believe it or not, some Mishumadim as well. In 1883. Okay, I just want to give the last... Uh, that's a different, different story. 1883. Remember, in 1883, uh, uh, there are now newspapers everywhere, magazines, uh, even we, we, we're publishing in Hebrew and in Yiddish journals regularly, Hamavaser uh, and so on, Hatzfira, uh, those 19th century, I'm referring to, 19th century periodicals. Everybody was involved. Everybody knew exactly what was going on. Okay. And the same thing would happen a little later when we have the Bailus affair. And then all of Jewry is involved. Lawyers are brought from the greatest places in the world to Kiev to serve as the lawyers for the Jews in uh, to Mendel Bailus. Okay, but we're, we're dealing with Haggadah Shel Pesach. <laughs> so uh, here's an interesting passage that was brought to my attention. And Kola Kavod, I want to give credit to Rabbi Tzvi Engel of Skokie, Illinois. Um, who, uh, who mentioned this passage to me. This, this is a passage that appears in the Migdal Eder Haggadah. One of the greatest of all Haggadahs of all time is the Migdal Eder. It gets reprinted in many different formats. You can get it in paperback, in smaller. I'm just holding a recent New York edition of the Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder is a collection of, it says on the front page, 119 Perushim on the Haggadah Shal Pesach. Whoever made that count didn't know how to count. There are more than 119 perishing uh, in the Sefer. But anyway, that's what it says on the title page. The editor was a great Gaon who lived in the 19th century. This Sefer was first published, remember the date and place? It was published in Vilna in 1892. 1892. And the literature from Tisa Eslar continues nonstop from 1883 until the Bidlis case. They never stopped talking about it. They're still writing books about Tisa Esler, by the way. So, um, in this Haggadah Shel Pesach, first published in Vilna, 1892, and the uh, uh, the Mechaber of this, his name was Rabbi Israel David Miller, from Grodna, author of many, many sorum in the 19th century. He was a great fighter for orthodoxy. He wrote a sefer called Toldos Menachem, the, the best biography ever written. Um, and almost the only biography ever written of, uh, of Reb Nochemke, who was the Rebbe and the model for the Chofetz Chaim. So Reb Nochemke of Grodno, he knew Reb Nochemke, and he wrote Toldos Menachem, and if you want to learn more about Nochemke, and if you want to learn more about Rabbi Israel David Miller, so in the new editions of Toldos Menachem, looks like this, um, they publish a biography of Rabbi Israel David Miller as well. He died in 1911, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, uh, he wrote a parish, one of the 119, it's called Chemdas Yisrael, and it appears on Holach Vanya. And it is an incredible parish, but it takes up three pages here. I'm not going to read the whole parish, but I'm just going to, I'm alluding to it. On your own, go look at the full passage. But he asked all the standard questions that everybody asks on Holach Vanya, uh, um, in the Torah it says we, we consumed matzah when we left Mitzrayim not while we were in Mitzrayim and here it says why does it say in Mitzrayim and um, we say this passage is written in Aramaic this passage everybody agrees is written in the Gola it's late 
Um, it's after the original carbon Pesach anymore. So how could you say Kol Even if it was during the bias, you can't say Kol You have to be on a uh, sign up because you know for a, for a special group in order to bring a carbon Pesach. You can't say uh, five minutes before to say the Kol He has all these standard questions that all the other Mefarshim ask on every word of, of Halach and How does it connect to the end? Uh, about uh, Geula coming and so on. So he writes an incredible parish in it on Holach Manyo, and he says Holach Manyo was written by Ruach HaKodesh. It's not referring to any of the things anybody thinks it's referring to. The entire Holach Manyo is referring to blood libel. It's incredible. Now, you'd never think that's possible, right? And it's probably not possible. What you have here is a midrash, a midrash on Holach Manyo. But he wrote this in 1892. What's on everybody's mind on Pesach is blood libel. And when he came to Halach Manya, and he had all these questions, he couldn't make sense out of the text. And he saw in a beautiful way, and you have to read this to see just how beautiful it is, every word in Halach Manya alludes in one way or another to blood libel. And uh, uh, so first of all, Halach Manya, we begin with, this is Lachman. You tell us that we have to mix blood. There's no blood. Take a look at this matzah. This matzah is dry water. <laughs> It's Halach Ma'anyo. Nobody in the world would eat this if they didn't have to eat. There's no blood in this Halach <laughs> And that's how, he, that's how he starts, and he continues with every word of Halach Ma'anyo and how it, how it refers to one way or another to, to, to blood libel and to the Christian claim that we have to slaughter others, Christians in particular, and drink their blood. So I'm simply giving you one other sample of the impact of blood libel on the Haggadah Shal Pesach. If read the entire passage, you'll, you'll be quite amazed in any edition of Migdal Eder. In sum, the blood libel charge impacted on the text of Shas, on the content of the Shulchan Aruch, and on the interpretation of the Haggadah Shal Pesach. Thank you very much, and Hakosh uh, Shemesameh of Tehbi. Thank you.